Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. From the National, 15th of July, 2022. From the News Section. Green Ink Grandad, who's unable to feed or dress himself, is denied disability payments by Gordon McCracken. A seriously ill man has hit out at benefit bosses after he was denied disability payments, despite being unable to feed or dress himself. John Doherty, who suffers from sciatica and severe nerve damage, was shocked when Department of Work and Pension, DWP, told him he was not eligible for personal independence payment, PIP, a form of financial support available to people with severe disabilities. The Greenock grandfather says his conditions prevent him from completing simple tasks like opening a jar or putting on his clothes. But a DWP assessment said that Doherty should not be awarded the assistance payments as they believe his mobility is adequate. While the report into Doherty's condition admitted that the 50-year-old needed aid to prepare simple meals and wash, his claim for support ma- payments was still refused. Doherty said that the decision has been devastating. He said, I'm in agony on a daily basis and can't walk more than a few metres without losing my balance. People have had to carry me home before as I've fallen over in the street or have taken a seizure. I provided the assessors with photos of all the industries I suffered from falling over. There were everything from cuts and grazes to broken bones and black eyes. I don't know what's going to happen next. I wouldn't wish this struggle on anyone. It's difficult to go downstairs. My hands don't work properly, so I struggle to grip things and the pain in my legs just leaving me unable to get out about. I worked hard when I was younger and I never took time off when I was struggling. Now I wish I had looked after my health because it's not done me any good. I've worked myself into the ground in the long run. I can't get into a lot of rooms in my house and I struggle to cook for myself. I basically live off takeaways because I can't open jars or lids. I've got no grip at all. There are obstacles in my life every day which to other people would be simple things but my mobility is completely shot. Being told I can't get any support because I apparently able to move myself about is complete slap in the face. Doherty says that the rising living costs have put extra strain on him financially and that being refused PIP has put him in an even more difficult position. When contacted by Doherty's situation, a DWP spokesperson chose not to comment on his specific circumstances. They said personal independence payment PIP assessments are carried out by healthcare professionals trained to consider the impact of someone's health condition or a disability and they focus on an individual's functional needs arising from their long-term health condition or disability, not the health condition or disability itself. 
Our priority is that millions of people we support every year get the benefits to which they're entitled and to ensure they receive a supportive and compassionate service. And that article was by Gordon McCracken. From The National Friday 15th of July 2022 From the News Section ScotRail confirms date for return of normal timetable. Here's what to expect. By Laura Webster ScotRail has confirmed that its normal timetable will soon be reintroduced after months of reduced services caused by a dispute over pay for drivers. The recently nationalised rail operator cut hundreds of services in May amid a staff shortage and drivers refusing to work on rest days. Following negotiations, members of the union, as left, agreed to accept ScotRail's improved 5% pay offer this week, meaning an end to disruption. From Wednesday, July 20th, hundreds of services will be brought back and the temporary timetable brought to an end. ScotRail said work is underway to ensure that the timetable can be fully restored with nearly 700 services and planning staff are working flat out to carry out the changes required. David Simpson, ScotRail Service Delivery Director, said, We are delighted to be able to reintroduce the timetable, adding almost 700 services each day and delivering the service that our customers expect and deserve. It has been a very challenging few months, impacting those across the country who rely on rail travel or on our staff too. It is a big step forward to reach such a positive resolution and continue to our efforts to provide the safest, greenest and most reliable railway we can. We thank customers for their patience through this period. And that article was by Laura Webster. From The National Friday, 15th of July, 2022. From the politics section. TUC warns UK workers are set for the worst pay rise of all G7 countries. By Laura Webster. UK workers are set to receive the worst pay rises out of all G7 countries, a new report warned. According to the Trade Union Congress, TUC report, when adjusted for inflation, salaries are going to decrease by 6.2% over the next two years. That means that the average worker will lose £1,750 from their take-home pay. France, Germany, Italy, the US, Canada and Japan will all see their real terms pay grow faster. The figures based on research from the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development show. After the UK, Italy's economy will be the next worst affected with a minus 3.8% drop in real wages over the next two years. The US is set to see real wage growth at 0.6% and France is not far behind on 0.5%. It comes after a previous TUC report found that the average UK worker lost £20,000 in real earnings between the financial crash and the pandemic. According to Frances O'Grady, the General Secretary of the TUC, workers here are suffering the worst pay squeeze in the G7 and the longest in modern history. 
She went on, having repeatedly promised high-wage economy, the Conservatives have consigned Britain to the bottom of the league for pay growth. Years of standstill wages have left households brutally exposed to the cost of living crisis. The number one priority of the Tory leadership candidates should be to get pay rising across the economy. And that article was by Laura Webster. This article is from The National, date 18th July 2022, from the Culture section. Visitors here aren't tourists, they're temporary locals. By Robin McKelvey. Everything good that has happened on egg since the community buyout has happened because of the buyout, says Stuart Paul McCarthy, the man behind Egg Brewery, Scotland's first cooperative brewery. I'm back on the island, just weeks after Egg celebrated 25 years of community ownership to explore a Hebridean success story born out of the community gaining more control of its lives. Arriving on Egg is always a joy as the distinctive pitchstone lava hulk of Anscour beckons and the island reveals itself, a real-life treasure island. Given all the recent CalMac disruptions, I gave up trying to book with the Maleg office after an hour stuck in a telephone loop and instead sailed with Arisag Marine, arisag.co.uk. It proved a wise choice as they run a slick, friendly operation with the skipper diverting off course if he spots dolphins or even a whale. I'm greeted by the cheery face of Lucy Conway, a director of the Isle of Egg Heritage Trust. I tuck into a bowl of local mussels as we chat overlooking the water. I spot a pod of dolphins and a heron in the lovely reborn Germsdale Bay Cafe and Bar. It's part of an impressive new Anlamrig community hub which is taking shape designed by WT Architecture. It includes a more spacious shop and community space. Egg Adventures, which just started out hiring out 100% green energy e-bikes, a world first for an island, is here too. Egg is seriously green. In 2008, it became the first island in the world to generate all of its own electricity from wind, solar and hydropower. Recycling is paramount here, upcycling too. And it's not just all eco-warrior hot air, it's everywhere, in the little things. Like the toilet that makes you think about water use, or the green electricity showers that you have to swipe contactless at £2 for six minutes. Conway talks about the importance of community. Community really means something on egg, and we welcome people to become lo temporary locals, not just tourists, interacting, working with and learning from the islanders. The new community hub is a symbol of this and it doesn't have separate spaces for locals. You eat, shop and even do your laundry with the islanders. Things have not always been so rosy for Egg. Pushing along an old track under crags where golden eagles swirl on the thermals, I find the old crofting community at Grillin more than 100 people lived in this part of the island until the 1850s. They were brutally cleared 
most of them forced off to Nova Scotia, never to cast their eyes on egg again. Twenty minutes further on, I come to a much more complete village, where sadness descends with the mists as I walk among the skeletons of croft houses with their deadened hearths. My mood brightens meeting Charlie. It's impossible not to be cheered by a taxi driver tour guide and personality who offers a wee pre-tour dram as he spirits us across Egg in his minibus. We discover the wide sands of Lake Bay, peering over to Rum, and then stop off at his house where coffee and cakes made by his artist wife, Labby Gilly, Egg has a rich arts scene, are part of the £15 per adult tour, children go free, as are petting sessions with their collie, Bob. A saltire and a Nova Scotian flag flutter outside. Charlie talks passionately about the past, present and future. It's great to see Egg thriving and working together as a community. Everyone knows everyone and we all look out for each other. And there is so much going on with the island's Fish Egg Festival just last week and the howling fling too from Egg resident and musician, the Pictish Trail. Charlie drops us back where we're staying at the community-owned camping pods. Lucy Conway explained to me over lunch the pods are part of the new SCOTO initiative that is linking community tourism enterprises throughout the Scottish mainland and isles. Community is a word I hear again and again on Egg, and the idea of the island working with other communities around Scotland is an exciting one. I'm keen to learn more about Egg's community, and this summer at Egg's Church of Scotland, a temporary exhibition on the walls and lining the pews delves into the build-up to the community buyout in June 1997, and then moves on in detail to how it has worked out. It has been curated by Camille Dressler, the island historian. Her encyclopedic knowledge is so impressive that she has also curated Egg Tales for the new Coast Storytelling Initiative too. Back at Egg Brewery with McCarthy, we sweep through how this democratic, inclusive brewery is a perfect fit for Egg. Like everyone I meet on Egg, he is passionate about the success of the buyout and hopeful lessons learned here can be put to use elsewhere. Who wouldn't want to run their own community, he asks rhetorically. I ask if this extends to the country around him, he smiles. Sometimes over a beer, things don't even need to be said, especially over an egg beer. That article was by Robin McKelvey. From the National, Monday the 18th of July 2022, from the comment section, Kirsty Strickland, watching would-be Tory leader squirm is top TV viewing by columnist Kirsty Strickland. By now, you should know how I feel about TV debates. Whatever the occasion, be it an election, a leadership contest or ahem, a referendum campaign, I take a more is more approach. Some people have been complaining about the televised debates for the Conservative leadership contest. They point out that while smaller parties often don't get a look-in during an election campaign, the Tory candidates for PM have been offered primetime spots across the various news networks. After all, we don't get a say in this contest. The final two candidates for Prime Minister will be chosen by Conservative MPs 
with the eventual winner being chosen by party members. I understand these arguments, but I don't agree with the conclusion. My test for whether a TV debate should go ahead is this. Are the politicians likely to find it an enjoyable process? Save for a few massacres here and there, the answer is always a resounding no. They answer questions in front of an audience because they have to, not because they want to. Which is why they're always a good idea, regardless of the electorate they're trying to appeal to. I watched last Friday's Channel 4 debate with a mixture of glee and dread. If you can forget for a minute, the men and women on your screen are all in the run- running for the most powerful job in the UK. Watching them squirm is an entertaining experience. Beforehand, I would have put money on Tom Tugendhat giving an ensured performance. He's usually calm and composed in committees and during interviews. But the bright lights of the studio seemed to sap away at his confidence because what he offered was a repetitive soundbite laden series of non-answered. He was also the candidate that Snap Poll said performed the best on the night, so take from that what you will about the calibre of the other politicians. Through her sartorial choices, Liz Trust tried to channel her inner Margaret Thatcher, but when she spoke, the audience heard Robo May, not the Iron Lady. Bland doesn't quite cut it. At times you forget she was there. Rishi Sunak sounded like he had spent many hundreds of hours and thousands of pounds in media training. He was slick and combative, but totally devoid of charm. Penny Morton had a shocker. It was hard to reconcile the woman who had been winning praise previously unheard of since Ruth Davidson was a straddling a tank and being proclaimed as the darling of the Conservative Party with the uncertain, easily flustered woman we saw on the stage. As somebody who up until she appeared in the debate was deemed a frontrunner in the competition, she was the one who faced the most challenge from her fellow candidates. Afterwards, in a now-deleted tweet, her team put out a bizarre statement which read, The top 180 innovations that we have had, how many are used in the NHS? None. Your guess is as good as mine, folks. Kemi Badenoch went to the debate with the latest, with the least to lose and the most to gain. While she does have the backing of some senior Tories, such as Michael Gove, she is still a virtual unknown outside of the Conservative Party. While her answers were light on detail and substance, she did manage to make sure that she wasn't sidelined in favour of her more well-known colleagues. It worked, and subsequent polls have indicated she might be the one to watch when Tory MPs begin the next round of voting today. That was in the first television debate, but there are more planned. The contenders will be dreading each and every one. The blue on blue fighting will only intensify as they edge closer to the top prize. There is a very real possibility that by the final sparring session, we'll see Tugendhat lob his glasses at Sunak in a fit of rage as Morton and Triss engage in a furious thumb war. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but for the viewing public, this is as good as it gets. The circus is in town, and we should all enjoy it, it in all its ridiculous glory while we can. As soon as it packs up and leaves, and the winner is chosen, then we're on to the next stage, when the new clown is in charge. Scottish independence wasn't mentioned in the Channel 4 debate, but it's sure to come up. When the candidates are asked a question, we'll see five people give five answers that all amount to the same thing. When arguing against Scotland's right to choose its future, a few of the wannabe Prime Ministers might sound conciliatory and reasonable. Others might f- go for the eat your cereal approach. Regardless, 
we will know what they re- are really saying. The UK isn't a voluntary union of equals for as long as a new Prime Minister, chosen by a tiny minority of the population, can block our right to a vote. And that was an opinion piece by Kirsty Strickland. From the National, Monday the 18th of July 2022, from the comment section, Steph Peyton, Tory race has been a bonfire of candidates' previous beliefs. By columnist Steph Peyton, as much as the United Kingdom prides itself on its self-anointed mother of parliaments, the myth of Britain as a functioning democracy is as poorly maintained as the crumbling palace of Westminster itself. There's no better analogy for the state of Britain's electoral system than the rat-infested hallways of the UK Parliament, replete with sparkling light figures and dripping pipes. Yet while the political class grasp at the trappings of autocracy abroad, British exceptionalism remains a successful barrier to the reality that calling Britain a successful democracy is akin to believing that the British Empire was a force for good. Remove those Union flags, splattered glasses and the truth will reveal itself. UK MPs are elected through a non-proportional voting system that actively maintains a broken two-party system. Our head of state is an unelected monarch with a penchant for poking her nose into the legislative process when it suits her. And the entirety of the UK is now set to be governed by a Prime Minister hand-picked by roughly the same number of people as attended Glastonbury last year. Whoever takes the reins of the Conservative Party and, by extension, the disgraced Office of Prime Minister, will have been chosen by a coterie of right-wing party members committed enough to the ideals of conservatism that they are willing to throw their cash into the party coffers on a regular basis. It's the equivalent of piling all the worst people you know into an auditorium, shunting in a few Tory leadership hopefuls and giving them a big thumbs up. The pitches being made by the left in the leadership race are not considering the wants, needs or desires of the United Kingdom as a whole, but rather those of the same people who decided Boris Johnson was the man for them just a few years ago. If you want an image of the contemporary Conservative Party, think of a sea of white-haired, I'm alright jacks, clicking their tongues in disapproval at the modern world, while Rishi Sunak, Ital play who wants to be the next Prime Minister, with their only Ask the Audience lifeline left. It's a long-standing hypocrisy of the political right to simultaneously hold contradictory support for both small government that stays out of the lives of the individual alongside the belief that it is the government's role to legislate abortion, gay rights and self-determination out of existence. Autonomy is all well and good apparently, just as long as it isn't in line with a particular set of values. Autonomy has, in fact, been the underlying theme of the Conservative Party's leadership race so far with candidates racing to ensure their backers how little they care for such things. In the case of Penny Mordaunt, it has been her frantic attempts to distance herself from any comments she may have made in the past that could be seen as supportive of the bodily autonomy and rights of trans people. In the case of Sunak, it's the claims that the Tory frontrunner sees Scotland's democratically elected parliament as an obstacle to his legislative agenda. And in the case of all candidates, None has wasted a second before dismissing out of hand the prospect of a second independence referendum in Scotland, regardless of the democratic mandate the Scottish Parliament holds to pursue one. It's been a veritable bonfire of previously held beliefs thrown into the flames before the party members have a chance to look too closely. A leadership race that has started in the ash. Sunak has abandoned his stalemates from 2017, 
that it would be good to that it would be hard to block a second referendum in the future, but that it should be pushed until after Brexit. In his eyes, a good deal in leaving the EU could only strengthen the case for the Union. Well, we didn't get a good deal. We were hit with a right-wing, oven-ready Brexit deal that has caused exceptional damage to the UK, both politically and economically. Not just to you turn on the issue, though. Sunak now allegedly supports overruling Holyrood entirely because... According to Scottish Tory MP Andrew Bowie, we cannot trust the Scottish National Party to act in the best interests of the Scottish people. Bowie isn't really thinking about the SNP though. What he really means is the Scottish electorate cannot be trusted to vote in a way that pleases the Conservative government and so should have the opportunity to do so overruled. A small number of Brits will soon choose the new Prime Minister on our behalf following a grovelling electoral race that saw the interests of party stakeholders put in a pedestal above the interests of the UK as a whole. This tack to the right, soon to be followed by claims of having been handed a mandate from the membership, will be used to justify all manner of moves that seek to limit the autonomy of the people of Scotland. Here's hoping such a strategy only hastens the demise of the United Kingdom. And that was a comment piece by Steph Payton. From the National, Tuesday the 19th of July 2022, from the news section, climate change blamed as heatweight sees UK temperatures break 40 degrees Celsius by Xander Richards. The temperature in the UK has risen above 40 degrees Celsius for the first time ever. The record of 40.2 degrees was set at London's Heathrow Airport on Tuesday at 12.50pm. The Met Office issued a warning to be careful in the heat, saying that temperatures were continuing to rise. The Met Office said that many sites across the UK have broken the previous temperature record of 38.7 degrees Celsius, set in Cambridge three years ago. Charlwood, Wisley in Chesterton in Surrey and Kew Gardens in North Holt in West London were among the places to exceed the 2019 record by early afternoon, with temperatures climbing to above 39 degrees Celsius. The Met Office's Chief of Science and Technology, Professor Stephen Belcher, said he was not expecting to see such highs in his lifetime. Belcher said studies have shown it was virtually impossible for the UK to record such high temperatures in an undisrupted climate. These extremes will get more extreme in the future, he warned. Belcher went on, In some ways, of course, 40 degrees Celsius is an arbitrary figure because we see the impacts of heat waves at lower temperatures. But for me, it's a real reminder that the climate has changed and it will continue to change. The professor warned that if the world continues under a high emission scenario, we could see temperatures like this every three years and stress the need for net zero. Transport Secretary Grant Shapps conceded the UK's transport network cannot cope with the extreme heat and said issues on the rails and roads will continue for decades during such heat waves. Congestion levels in city roads and commuter numbers in London public transport services were both down on Tuesday morning, suggesting people were heeding advice not to travel unnecessarily. Britons have been urged to stay inside during the hottest period of the day, between 11am and 4pm, and wear sun cream in a hat, stay in the shade and keep hydrated with water, and there are warnings about swimming in open water. And that report was by Xander Richards. From the National, Tuesday the 19th of July 2022, from the Politics section, Quasi-quartine flown around Saudi Arabia by oil firm 
by Abby Garden Crosby, multimedia political reporter. Business Secretary Quasi Quartings taking free hospitality from Saudi Arabia's state-owned oil firm shows the hypocrisy in the UK government's energy policy, the Scottish Greens have said. Transparency data for the Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy BEIS, department revealed that Quartang travelled to the Kingdom in late January this year on a commercial flight costing the taxpayer £4,430. But while travelling around Saudi Arabia, Quartang was flown by Aramco, one of the world's biggest oil producers, partially owned by the Kingdom, to numerous cities. Quartang also visited the Shabla oil field with the Saudi Energy Minister, but this was not disclosed in the transparency data and instead reported by Saudi press. Quartang left the UK for Saudi Arabia on January the 29th. On January the 30th, he was flown by Aramco to Daman, the country's fifth most populous city, and then gifted an overnight stay at the firm's guest houses within the residential compound for workers. The camp is fenced in and only Aramco's employees and their dependents can live there full-time. The next day, January the 31st, Quartang was flown by Aramco to Jubal, an eastern city on the Gulf Coast, and then Riyadh, the kingdom's capital and financial centre, and also had lunch provided for by the firm. Quartang was also gifted a £300 Lenovo tablet, which transparency data lists as held by department. The business secretary returned to the UK on February the 1st. However, one visit during the trip was not logged onto the transparency data. The Saudi Gazette reports that Quartain visited the supergiant Sheba oil field owned by Aramco on January the 31st, but there is no corresponding travel entry on the recently released hospitality disclosures log. The field is more than 750 kilometres from Dammam, but has its own airport built and operated by Aramco. Quartime was pictured smiling in traditional Saudi clothing in the desert holding hands with Saudi Energy Minister Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman. It is unclear how Quartime could have made the journey without support from Aramco. Opposition politicians have criticised Quartime taking the Saudi state's hospitality, particularly in light of their human rights record while others have questioned whether he's broken the ministerial code. Ross Greer, the Scottish Greens MSP, said, The only thing more consistent than the UK government's fawning relationship with Big Oil is its grovelling dedication to pleasing the brutal Saudi dictatorship at all costs. It may have one of the worst human rights records in the world, but that hasn't stopped Downing Street from arming and supporting the regime, with UK-made bombs and aircraft playing a central role in the brutal bombardment of Yemen. This is yet another example of the hypocrisy at the heart of the UK foreign and energy policy. With independence, we can take a different path by investing in a renewable potential and standing up for human rights and democracy on the world stage. Kerry McCarthy, Labour Shadow Minister for Climate Change, told Insider, It's bad enough that Conservative energy policy failures mean the UK has to go cap in hand to fossil fuel dictators. Now the Secretary of State must clarify whether he allowed oil money to pay for him to dine out and jet around Saudi Arabia. The ministerial code states that offers of free travel should not normally be accepted unless the offer is made by a foreign government 
provided no undue obligation is created. Although Aramco is majority state-owned, it is not part of the Saudi Arabian government. Susan Hawley, Executive Director at Spotlight on Corruption, said, As the ministerial code makes clear, UK ministers should clearly not be accepting hospitality and travel junkets when they make overseas visits from the likes of state-owned oil companies, such as Saudi Aramco, when there is any risk of undue obligations or influence being created. It is essential that the department release full details of these visits, what was discussed and the purpose of the visit, with full cost of the hospitality and travel provided, so that the public can have the confidence that no such undue obligations were created. A BEIS spokesperson said, Travel to and from Saudi Arabia was arranged by the British government. These short internal flights within Saudi Arabia were arranged by the Saudi government and have been properly and publicly declared, as is required. Saudi press also reported that Kwasang had introductory visits to several companies to learn about their most important products while in Jubail, but the details were not published by BEIS. And that was a report by Abby Garton Crosby. From the National, Tuesday the 19th of July 2022, from the politics section, Labour factions treated anti-Semitism as a weapon, Ford report finds. Report by Xander Richards. Factions within the Labour Party treated anti-Semitism as a weapon, a long-awaited report into a leaked dossier has found. The report makes difficult reading for all sides of the Labour Party, describing a toxic atmosphere fuelled by factionalism. Martin Ford, QC, a barrister and former independent advisor to the Windrush Compensation Scheme, was chosen by Labour's ruling National Executive Committee, NEC, to chair an inquiry into the circumstances, contents and release of the internal anti-Semitism dossier in 2020. The late 860-page document found no evidence of anti-Semitism being handled differently from other complaints and blamed factional opposition towards former Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn for hampering efforts to tackle the issue. Corbyn allies used the dossier to say elements of the party undermined his leadership. Labour said on Tuesday that its General Secretary had received the Ford report into the dossier and was due to take it to an NEC meeting. It has since been published online. The foreword to the Ford report, published on Tuesday afternoon, said The evidence clearly demonstrates that a vociferous faction in the party sees any issues regarding anti-Semitism as exaggerated by the right to embarrass the left. It was, of course, also true that some opponents of Jeremy Corbyn saw the issue of anti-Semitism as a means of attacking him. Thus, rather than confront the Parliament need to deal with the profoundly serious issue of anti-Semitism in the party, both factions treated it as a factional weapon. The foreword also said the investigation found the disciplinary process was not fit for purpose and potentially prone to factional interference. For example, there was a complete lack of any auditable database of cases, which meant the party could not, at any given moment, collect accurate information on the number of complaints which were then pending, or which had been disposed of, and the stage that the live matters had reached, it said. However, it did say many aspects of the party's recent reforms of disciplinary procedures were to be applauded and the changes were generally steps in the right direction. The foreword called for constructive engagement 
with the findings in the 138-page review. There is a culture of intellectual smugness which exists at the extremes of the political spectrum the party represents, it said. In the past, this has led to the dismissal of valid, albeit sometimes uncomfortable, views. It must now come to an end. The report also describes the Labour Party as harbouring a toxic atmosphere fueled by factionalism. It said, We understand the intensity of anger among many of the membership at the contents of, in particular, the WhatsApp messages cited in the leaked report. Our focus, though, is on how such a toxic situation arose and, more importantly, how it can be avoided in the future. One of the tragedies of this period for the party is that so many have lost sight of the humanity of those they see as being an opposing faction, which is perhaps easier than ever in an age where so much of our communication takes place at arm's length through a screen. The report backed the conclusion of a Labour Together report, which found that the party has spent substantial periods of the last five years in conflict with itself. It said, We believe there is a clearer need for individuals to see and treat each other better, regardless of their political views. A party spokesperson said, The Ford report details a party that was out of control. Keir Stammer is now in control and has made real progress in ridding the party of the destructive factionalism and unacceptable culture that did so much damage previously and contributed to her defeat in 2019. Initially, the terms of reference said the investigative panel chaired by Ford would use their best endeavours to deliver the the report to Labour by July 2020 but it has taken two years to come to fruition. In March this year, Ford wrote to Labour's General Secretary to tell him the content of his review had been finalised and all that was needed was detailed checking for legal and factual accuracy prior to publication. And that report was by Xander Richards. From The National, Tuesday the 19th of July 2022, from the Sports Section. Aberdeen pen new partnership agreement with Icelandic outfit K.R. Reykjavik by Aidan Smith. Aberdeen have signed a two-year partnership with Iceland's oldest and most successful football club, K.R. Reykjavik. Under the commercial deal, the Pitodri club will work with K.R. Reykjavik to share knowledge, experience and expertise to help the Icelandic club develop its income streams, facilities, coaching, community outreach and fan engagement. This is the second partnership the Dons have secured since they began exploring opportunities with other clubs to offer mutual benefits on and off the pitch and to promote the club globally. The first agreement was struck with All Stars United in San Jose, California. The club also has a long-term strategic relationship with Atlanta United, one of the leading teams in the MLS. Aberdeen's commercial team will work collaboratively with KR Reykjavik to attract joint sponsors and commercial partners and replicate successful activities and initiatives that increase revenues. Additionally, the Dons football operations team will provide support and advice to KR Reykjavik that will include hosting their players and coaches at Cormac Park. With support from AFC and its coaches, KR Reykjavik will host an annual summer football school in Iceland. 
Rob Wicks, AFC's commercial director, said, This is an excellent example of the type of partnership Aberdeen Football Club is keen to facilitate and foster with clubs across the world. It's testament to the reputation we are gaining in Europe for our youth development and coaching, our award-winning community trust and our innovative commercial models. There is strong interest in Scottish football in Iceland and after initially reaching out to the Icelandic League, KR made an approach to us which has now led to today's announcement. We're really excited to be working with KR and to seeing the partnership not only enhance their football community and commercial operations, but also allow for shared learning and initiatives that will benefit our coaches, sponsors and commercial partners. Commenting on the partnership, Paul Christianson, chairman of KR Reykjavik, added, We are delighted to sign this agreement today. Aberdeen FC and KR Reykjavik are two iconic professional football clubs from the North Atlantic region. Both clubs performed around the same time and have achieved domestic league and cup success while also having landmark moments in European football. More recently, both clubs share similar aspirations for growth and success. With new stadium plans in place and an appetite to increase levels of fan engagement, there are considerable synergies between us. KR were the first Icelandic team to compete in European competition, while Aberdeen in the 1980s were the first Scottish team to win two European trophies, the European Cup Winners' Cup and the European Super Cup. In 1967, both clubs crossed paths in European competition when they were drawn to play each other over two legs when competing in the European Cup Winners' Cup. Aberdeen FC Hall of Fame inductee Jim Bett represented both clubs and in 1994 helped KR to win the Icelandic Cup. Established in 1899, KR Reykjavik is the most successful club in Icelandic football having won the Urvansteild Karla competition 27 times. In 1964, KR was the first Icelandic representative in the European Cup. This article was by Aidan Smith. The National News on Wednesday, July the 20th. Call for action to help women in the workplace. An article written by Sean Bell. Women over the age of 50 in Scotland need greater support in the workplace to address persistent inequalities in pay and progression, according to the latest research. A new report produced on behalf of Scotland's Fair Work Convention by the National Institute of Economic and Social Research says that these older workers, which comprise roughly a third of Scotland's workforce, often face greater inequalities in pay than younger women in relation to men. The research also found that, of the women interviewed, who all either worked in the finance and insurance or information and communication sectors, many expressed reluctance to pursue opportunities for progression, and that this was typically associated with a wish to avoid potential stress and pressure. The majority of the women in the study also felt their capacity and desire to pursue opportunities for more pay and responsibility had suffered as they got older. The study also revealed that while many women are concerned about age discrimination, employers often fail to consider age as an important aspect of workplace diversity and inclusion. In response to these findings, the report calls for employers to take action to increase opportunities for flexible working for women over 50, 
given the likelihood that they will have substantial caring responsibilities. The report also recommends that employers increase their monitoring of pay, progression and training by age, and says that employers would benefit from increased support and guidance in addressing age discrimination in the workplace. The Institute's senior social researcher Catherine Stockland said, This report shows that women over 50 experience barriers in the workplace that are specific both to their age and gender. In order to address these challenges around pay and progression experienced by this group of women, employers must reflect on their workplace practices and consider to what extent their training, support and promotion opportunities reflect the needs of this group of women. A statement from Fair Work Convention co-chairs Mary Alexander and Patricia Finley added, What this research demonstrates is that the intersection of age and gender is uniquely shaping women's experiences of work in ways that are leaving older women significantly worse off, both in career progression and in pay. The Fair Work Convention calls on employers to take urgent action to support older women at work. Employers, the Scottish Government and trade unions all have a role to play. An article written by Sean Bell. The National News on Wednesday the 20th of July. Climate crisis sees hottest day ever in Scotland. An article written by Xander Richards. Scotland recorded its hottest day ever as temperatures climbed to 34.8 degrees Celsius. The temperature was recorded at Charter Hall in the Scottish borders, according to provisional Met Office figures, and beat an almost 19-year-old record by 1.9 degrees Celsius. Since August 2003, Grey Crook, also in the Scottish borders, held the temperature record north of the border when it experienced a high of 32.9 degrees Celsius. Mark Wilson of the Met Office said yesterday was officially the highest temperature recorded in Scotland since records began. The Met Office had issued an amber weather warning for extreme heat in eastern, southern and central parts of Scotland, which was enforced until midnight last night. Elsewhere in Scotland, Estelle Muir in Dumfries and Galloway recorded a temperature of 32.3 degrees Celsius, while in Threve, also in Dumfries and Galloway, the thermometer climbed to 31.2 degrees Celsius, the Met Office said earlier yesterday. Heatwaves are being made more intense, frequent and longer by climate change, and scientists said it would be virtually impossible for the UK to have experienced temperatures reaching 40 degrees Celsius without human-driven global warming. The Met Office's chief scientist, Professor Stephen Belcher, warned temperatures could get more extreme in the future, and the only way to stabilise the climate was to cut greenhouse gas emissions to net zero. He added that he was not expecting to see such highs in his career. Professor Belcher said studies had shown it was virtually impossible for the UK to record such high temperatures in an undisrupted climate. The rising temperatures have seen ScotRail put speed restrictions on many services, and rail bosses have warned trains could be delayed because of them. And the Scottish Fire and Rescue Service has warned that the wildfire risk in southern and eastern parts of Scotland has risen to very high. It said that, in prolonged periods of high temperatures, the risk of wildfires breaking out increases. The service's Deputy Assistant Chief Officer, Bruce Farkerson, said, At this time of year, the ground vegetation is a combination of green growth with a relatively high moisture content and dead vegetation lying on top, which can easily ignite and spread quickly over a large area. 
Meanwhile, Transport Secretary Grant Shapps insisted Boris Johnson has not checked out early from number 10, as the Prime Minister was criticised for not playing a direct enough role in combating the heatwave. He told Sky News, It's literally not true. In fact, exactly the opposite is the truth. Shown the Prime Minister's ride in a typhoon fighter jet, Mr Shapps tried to defend the flight. In the end, he has responsibility for Britain's security, Mr Shapps said. There is a war going on in Europe. Why on earth would he not go and meet with the RAF? Mr Shapps said that Mr Johnson had chaired Cabinet on Tuesday and that there was no COBRA meeting planned after the Prime Minister had been accused of skipping the meetings. He also said that issues on the rails and roads will continue for decades during extreme heatwaves, as it would take that long to replace them all. An article written by Xander Richards. The National News on Wednesday, July 20th. More Scots in employment, data shows. An article written by Jane MacLeod. About 72,000 more people were in jobs last month than in the same period last year, figures from the Office for National Statistics showed. Quarterly labour market statistics showed 2,423,000 employees were in payroll jobs, an increase of 72,000 on the same period last year, where 2,351,000 were on payrolls. Benefit claims decreased in June 2022, with figures showing 110,600 claims for universal credit and job seekers allowance, a decrease of 4,400 on the previous month. The Scottish Government said the figures show the economy is resilient as a number of people going into employment continue to increase. The percentage of people in employment has risen slightly, with statistics showing 75.4% of over 16s in Scotland were in employment from March to May 2022, compared to 74.8% in the previous quarter, from December 2021 to February 2022, showing an increase of 0.6%. However, there's been a slight increase in the number of people in Scotland who are unemployed, with figures showing the number of people in Scotland over the age of 16 who are out of work rising from 3.4% in the previous quarter from December 2021 to February 2022 to 3.5% over March to May 2022. Scotland also saw a slight increase in the number of people who are economically inactive, people who are not available for paid employment, with figures showing that 21.8% of adults over 16 are economically inactive in July 2022, compared to 21.6% in February 2022. Median monthly wages are also on the rise, showing a 5.6% increase to £2,126 in June 2022, compared to just under £2,000 per month on the same period last year. Tom Arthur, the Scottish Government's Minister for Public Finance, Planning and Community Wealth, said the Scottish economy still shows signs of resilience, with the employment rate increasing by 0.6 percentage points over the quarter. While today's figures continue to show recovery in Scotland's labour market, Scotland continues to face economic challenges with the rising cost of living, the continued impact of Brexit and the recovery from the effects of the pandemic and the economic consequences of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. The Scottish Government is firmly focused on delivering the ambitious National Strategy for Economic Transformation, which will help build an economy of secure, sustainable and satisfying jobs. 
A key part of this strategy is to provide people with the skills they need to gain new opportunities and ensure new and current businesses are supported in investing in innovative ideas that could lead to new industries and quality jobs across the country. An article written by Jane McLeod. The National News on Wednesday the 20th of July. ScotRail timetable returns to normal, but strikes ahead. An article issued by the National News Desk. ScotRail trains will return to normal today with almost 700 more services running each day. The train operator has advised passengers to check times before travel as trains revert back to this year's May timetable. However, it did warn there could be knock-on disruption to some services this week as a result of the extreme heat on some routes over recent days, with potential damage to infrastructure and the possibility of trains being out of position. Services on routes across Scotland were heavily disrupted over the last two months, amid an ongoing dispute over ScotRail employees' pay, which saw drivers refuse to work overtime or on rest days. Members of the ASLEF union have now voted to accept an improved pay offer, which includes a 5% wage increase, more money for rest day and Sunday working, and a policy of no compulsory redundancies for the next five years. At the height of the pay dispute, a temporary timetable had to be introduced on May 23rd. Travellers in Scotland still face further disruption, as other rail workers plan industrial action. Network rail workers are said to be walking out for 24 hours on July 27th. During similar action last month, ScotRail could only run reduced services on five lines in the central belt. Meanwhile, LNER, which runs cross-border services between Scotland and London, is one of eight rail companies where workers are taking action on July 30th. An article issued by the National News Desk. The National News on Wednesday the 20th of July. Damning report on UK government finds we'll foot the bill for Tory PPE errors for years. A front-page article written by Xander Richards. UK taxpayers will be footing the bill for mistakes the Tory government made during the pandemic for years to come, the chair of a key Westminster committee has said. The comments came as the Public Accounts Committee published a report into the billions of pounds wasted by Conservative mismanagement of PPE contracts. The often damning report focused on PPE procurement by the Department of Health and Social Care, which was run by Matt Hancock until June 2021, then Sajid Javid until July 2022, and is now led by Steve Barclay. It found the UK government was spending around £7 million every month to store the £3.9 billion unneeded items which it bought during the Covid pandemic. Some of these may have to be incinerated if no other use can be found for them. A number of the billions of items are still in China, while others are scattered across more than 70 storage locations in the UK or being held by suppliers. These 3.9 billion items are on top of the 3.6 billion PPE items which were not deemed up to standard for use in frontline services. The report found that there are a further 1.39 billion PPE items yet to be quality assured. The committee's report also said there was up to £2.7 billion of taxpayers' money at risk, as a total of 176 contracts are currently in dispute, mainly over issues of quality. The UK government is not able to fully understand what PPE it has and where it is because it does not have the right systems in place. 
In total, the Department of Health awarded around 10,000 contracts worth £13.1 billion, which were expected to deliver 37.9 billion items of PPE. Damning findings on the awarding of these contracts also estimate as much as £400 million in taxpayers' cash could have been lost to fraud. The committee said that the Department of Health had accepted that as much as 5% of PPE expenditure could have involved fraud. However, the government department was unable to give MPs any details on how it's progressing any fraud inquiries. The UK government reportedly argued that fraud in such contracts is a fact of life. The report also noted the unlawful VIP lane, which Boris Johnson's government set up early in the pandemic for PPE contract bids from firms recommended by Tory ministers. The MP said this unlawful channel resulted in 115 contracts worth £3.8 billion being awarded to 51 suppliers. The committee's report twice raises the issue of PPE MedPro, a firm at the centre of a fraud probe by the National Crime Agency. PPE MedPro, which is at the centre of a House of Lords probe amid claims that Tory peer Michelle Moan and her husband are linked to it, which they have denied, was paid £122 million for unusable gowns which were bought from the Chinese manufacturer for just £46 million. The committee asked how the firm had been able to secure a £76 million profit, saying the Department of Health had been reluctant to give any details. MPs said they were told all of the PPE contracts signed went through the same due diligence process. This is contradicted elsewhere in the report. The committee found 46 of 115 VIP lane contracts were awarded before a formalised eight-stage due diligence process had been established. As such, not all due diligence checks on areas such as financial, commercial and legal issues were completed before awarding contracts. Meg Hillier, an MP and chair of the Public Accounts Committee, said the departure from normal approaches to due diligence, record-keeping, decision-making and accountability in relation to PPE contracts puts a stain on the UK's response to the pandemic. Even if you accept that some proper procedure will have to slip in times of crisis, the complete collapse of some of the most well-established civil service practices beggars belief. The taxpayer will be paying for these decisions for years to come. SNP Cabinet Office spokesperson Brendan O'Hara said those struggling with the cost of living would be expected to foot the multi-billion pound bill for the Westminster government's incompetence. He went on, the Tory government owes the public an apology. As a result of Tory ministers' mismanagement of Covid contracts, we now have a stockpile of almost four billion items that are unusable and set to be incinerated. That is a kick in the teeth to all who are working to tackle climate change. In stark contrast, the Scottish Government retains powerful safeguards on the use of public money in healthcare through strong procurement rules. In Scotland, 88% of PPE is produced locally, and overall costs of pandemic procurement were a third less than the UK. A Department of Health spokesperson insisted that it takes fraud extremely seriously and said it was exploring every available option to bring those who commit fraud to account and seek to recover losses. Our priority through the pandemic has been saving lives. Despite massive inflation in prices and unprecedented global demand, we delivered over 21.4 billion items of PPE to frontline staff to keep them safe. 
with only 3% of the PPE we procured unusable in any context. It's simply wrong to suggest that the department does not know how much PPE it has or where it's located. We have a comprehensive data system in place to allow us to oversee the storage network and dispose of any excess stock. A front-page article written by Xander Richards. The National News on Wednesday, July the 20th. Unions call for maximum temperature to be set for workplace. An article written by Abby Garten-Crosby and read by Howell. Workers should be sent home if temperatures soar to 30 degrees, trade unions and the Lib Dems have demanded. As Scotland and the UK see record heat levels this week, unions and politicians have called for the introduction of a maximum workplace temperature. For staff in labour-intensive jobs, the call is for the limit to be set at 27 degrees, with employers required to introduce control measures such as installing ventilation and moving workers away from windows. Both the Unite and the TUC unions have called on the UK government to introduce the limit, but the Health and Safety Executive, or HSE, said that responsibility lies with employers, as every workplace is different. Employment law is devolved to the UK government, meaning Holyrood cannot legislate in this area. Scottish Lib Dem economy spokesperson Willie Rennie backed the union demands and submitted a motion to the Scottish Parliament urging MSPs to raise the issue with their Westminster counterparts with a view to placing this on a legal footing. Mr Rennie said, Unfortunately, high temperatures are only going to become more common, so the faster we think about adaptation, the better. High temperatures are clearly a concern for workers and workplace representatives alike. They lead to more accidents and falling productivity, so reducing them can be a win-win. Introducing a maximum workplace temperature and a duty for bosses to take action to keep their workers cool would be a sensible and humane step. From increasing ventilation to moving staff away from sources of heat, there are simple steps which can be taken to make workspaces a more pleasant place. I would like to see Scottish ministers take this issue up with their UK counterparts to see what can be done to give this legal force. Currently, UK government guidance suggests a minimum of 16 degrees Celsius or 13 degrees Celsius if employees are doing physical work, but there is no equivalent guidance for a maximum temperature, with employers only having to commit to keeping the temperature at a comfortable level. Francis O'Grady, TUC General Secretary, said... Anyone worried about their working conditions should join a union. It's the best way to stay safe at work and make sure your voice is heard. An article written by Abby Garten-Crosby. The National Politics on Wednesday the 20th of July. Useless Hancock demolished by Scottish caller on phone-in. An article issued by the National News Desk. Matt Hancock took a bruising while he hosted a radio phone-in as he was told he was useless by a Scottish caller. The former Health Secretary filled in for LBC host James O'Brien yesterday and endured a dressing down from a caller from Edinburgh called John. Mr Hancock, who resigned when it was revealed he had broken Covid social distancing rules when he conducted an affair with his aide Gina Cola De Angelo, was forced to defend his record live on air. Mr Hancock had been expecting to discuss who would be the next Prime Minister when the caller sprung the stinging criticism on him. John told the MP, I'd probably vote for Rishi Sunak because of the experience he's had and I think he'd probably be able to correct some of the mistakes that you've made in the past. 
For example, when I wrote to you about rare diseased people being pulled out of the European reference networks, 3,500 people in the UK, and you wrote back with something that made no sense at all. You wrote back to me and you know it was a waste of time. You got some civil servant to do that. You were totally useless as a health secretary. John told the West Suffolk MP people were living in hell due to decisions made by Mr Hancock during his tenure. He failed in attempts to speak over John. While Health Secretary, Mr Hancock was accused of ignoring calls from campaigners for the UK to remain part of the European reference networks, which provide members access to treatment and a wealth of expertise from across the world about rare diseases. The UK was ripped from the European reference networks when the country left the EU in 2020. An article issued by the National News Desk. The National July 21. Scottish village aims to become UK mecca for gravel cycling. Report by Gregor Young. A Scottish village is hoping to become a mecca for gravel cycling with the opening of the UK's first waymarked trails. Three new gravel cycling routes opened in Aberfoyle Stirling today for different levels of ability as part of a joint project by Bike Drussex and Gravel Foil, a new tourism brand for the area. The routes take riders through Loch Lomond and the Trussex National Park. The 10 kilometres, 20 kilometres, 30 kilometres waymarked routes start and finish in the centre of Aberfoyle and venture deep into Lochard Forest, exploring the areas surrounding Lochard and Loch Chon. Gravel cycling is a new discipline which aims to bring the experience of road cycling to the safety of mountain biking. Kenny Ogd, Head of Visitor Services at Loch Lomond and the Trussex National Park said, Aberfoyle is already a great destination for all types of cycling and these three routes highlight the best of the forest road network with amazing views of Ben Lomond and Lochard. Funding for the three Waymart gravel routes, said to be the first in the UK, has come from Forth Valley and Lomond Leader, Forestry and Land Scotland. Loch Lomond and the Trussets National Park and the Strathard Development Trust. They have all committed to providing support for the future development of access infrastructure in the National Park. Aberfoyle has previously run an annual gravel cycling festival in 2018, 19 and 2021 under the name of Gravel Foil which will now be used as a term to describe the gravel cycling opportunities offered. The event established Aberfoyle as a year-round destination for cycling and has brought economic benefits to local businesses in the area. Enda McLaughlin, Chair for Bike Trussets CIC, said, We have seen a definite increase in outdoor active tourism in the area over the last few years, with cycling leading that change. We are harnessing this success 
and are delighted to be the community lead for this local initiative, providing beautiful and safe routes for locals and tourists to explore the Lochard Forest. Report by Gregor Young The National, July 21 BBC breaching its own impartiality rules with focus on Conservatives. Report by Xander Richards The BBC is accused of breaching its own impartiality rules after scheduling what is effectively an hour-long party political broadcast to the Conservative Party. A complaint raised with the broadcaster focuses on its decision to air a debate between the final two Tory MPs contending to replace Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. The hour-long debate will air at 9pm on Monday, July 25, on both the BBC One and BBC Radio 5 Live. The two finalists in the Tory leadership race, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, will also be invited to appear in one-to-one interviews with the BBC's Nick Robinson as part of a separate broadcast. The focus on the Conservatives has raised clear concerns over the political impartiality of the broadcaster as other political parties will not be given parity of coverage according to Alipa's General Secretary. Chris McElhinney has written to Rick Bailey, the BBC's Chief Political Advisor and Deputy Director of Editorial Policy and Standards, to allege that the broadcaster is in breach of your own rules. The Alapa man highlighted Section 4 of the BBC's Editorial Guidance, which says the broadcaster must remain impartial, independent, and distance from government initiatives, campaigners, charities, and their agendas. And he adds, it is difficult to understand how any reasonable member of the public would conclude that a Tory leadership debate, in which both candidates are targeting solely Conservative Party members in their campaigns, does not breach this clause. In the letter dated July 19, McElhenney writes, Each of the candidates on the debate will have uninterrupted airtime to profess their views on matters such as denying the people of Scotland the right to determine their own future via a referendum on Scottish independence without a balanced pro-independence point of view being afforded the same airtime. This latest decision of the BBC to beam into televisions across Scotland, a Tory leadership debate, is just the latest of a long line of BBC decisions that have resulted in a fundamental breakdown of trust between the BBC and the people of Scotland. The people of Scotland have rejected the Conservative Party at every election for over seven decades. Why then? must they be subjected to a politically biased televised debate when they will have no recourse whatsoever to influence the result. 
It is no wonder then that a growing number of people in Scotland continue to refuse to pay the BBC licence fee. I look forward to your response in which you will set out how other political parties, such as my own, will be offered the opportunity to present an alternative point of view and for you to explain your editorial decision which is in breach of your own rules. Further concerns about breaches of impartiality have been raised amid the focus on the Conservative MP's bidding to replace disgraced interim Prime Minister Johnson. An SNP source told The National on Tuesday that wall-to-wall Tories and the BBC is failing audiences after a news anchor admitted one Tory MP had been almost ubiquitous on their channel. And writing for The Sunday National, the former top Channel 4 executive Stuart Cosgrove said the media's coverage of the Tory leadership race had taken a wrecking ball to fairness. Cosgrove wrote, The much-loved concept of impartiality, which sits at the heart of public service broadcasting and is a byword for BBC internal discipline, has taken a monumental doing this week exposing deep fault lines within how our media covers elected politics. A BBC spokesperson said, We are confident that hosting a debate between the two candidates in the contest to become Prime Minister of the UK is in accordance with the BBC's editorial guidelines. Report by Xander Richards The National, July 21 Sunak and Truss show Westminster is arrogant and out of touch. Report by Abby Garton Crosby. Westminster has never looked so arrogant and out of touch, with Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss confirmed as the final two vying to be the UK's next Prime Minister, the SNP have said. On Wednesday, Party member favourite Penny Mordaunt was kicked out of the race after Truss saw a boost to her numbers in the final ballot of MPs. Sunak and Truss, both high-ranking cabinet members under Boris Johnson, will go head-to-head over the summer in numerous hustings around the country and will face a ballot of Tory party members before the winner is confirmed on September 5. It comes as the First Minister pointed out in a blog post that whoever wins, Scotland did not vote either to be Prime Minister. Meanwhile, Labour said the contest was so scarily embarrassing that both of the candidates had pulled out of a Sky News debate earlier this week, forcing the show to be cancelled. Sunak won the final round of voting amongst MPs and picked up 137 votes, followed by Truss on 113. Mordaunt fell short and was removed from the contest on 105 votes. Speaking after the results were declared, SNP Westminster leader Ian Blackford blasted, 
if Scotland had any say in the Tory leadership contest, both Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak would have swiftly been shown the door. In this woeful race, it is clear whoever wins, Scotland loses. With the Tories lurching even further to the right, and the Labour Party backing them on austerity cuts and a hard Brexit, it is beyond doubt that the only way to keep Scotland safe from the damage of Westminster control is to become an independent country. Westminster has never looked so arrogant and out of touch. Independence is the only way to secure a permanent alternative and escape Westminster control for good. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon said earlier that she was concerned the leadership contest was pushing the Tories further to the right and away from mainstream Scottish values. She said, so far, we have seen the candidates for Prime Minister promise tax cuts for the rich, cuts to public spending and public services. They have also launched blatant attacks on devolution and the powers of the Scottish Parliament. While families and households across the country are trying to navigate a severe cost of living crisis caused by rising inflation and stagnant wages, we have heard next to nothing from any of these potential Prime Ministers on what they will do to alleviate these pressures. Every minute the Tories spend squabbling over who gets to 10 Downing Street comes at the cost of support and investment to help people across the country who are struggling now. Lorna Slater, the Scottish Green Minister and party co-leader, said neither Trust nor Suna represented change. And she went on, they both backed every single damaging decision that Boris Johnson made, whether it was the cruel universal credit cut that plunged thousands of people into poverty, the terrible Brexit deal that has curbed our right to travel while driving up prices, or his undemocratic attempts to block an independence referendum. Nor are they offering anything better in the future. They both want more oil and gas drilling and will double down on the cuts and austerity that 12 years of Tory governments have inflicted and the cruel Rwanda flights and hostile environment for refugees. It doesn't need to be like this. The people of Scotland did not vote for either of them or for their government. Independence is not just about removing uncaring and unaccountable Tory ministers. It's about taking our future into our own hands. Deputy Labour leader Angela Rayner tweeted in the aftermath of the results to criticise Sunak and Truss for dodging scrutiny and refusing to take part in the Sky News debate. She added, they are hiding from the public and their record. The Tories have no leadership and no answers. They are unfit to govern. Only Labour can provide the fresh start the country needs. Labour's Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting quoted, tweeted, Our next Prime Minister will be someone who propped up Johnson, 
voted for every one of his 15 tax rises and parroted his lies. After 12 years of conservative failure, they expect more time to fail. Their time is up. Both Sunak and Truss have seen their fair share of scandals during their time in office. For Sunak, he faced questions over his United States green card while Chancellor, his wife's non-DOM status, which meant she paid less UK tax, his decision to write off £4.3 billion in Covid fraud, the national insurance hike and cut to universal credit. Even this week he appeared to have confused County Durham Town Darlington as being in Scotland. Truss, meanwhile, was accused of being behind the cut to climate protections in the trade deal with Australia, had an affair with a married MP in 2009, and faced criticism in her role as Women and Equalities Minister for hitting out at identity politics, refusing to bring in self-ID for transgender people. Report by Abby Garten Crosby. From The National, Thursday the 21st of July 2022, from the Sports Section. Arthur Boruch cheekily dodges saying Rangers in Celtic interview as Hoops Hero reflects on Korea, by Aidan Smith. Arthur Boruch has cheekily dodged mentioning Rangers as he reflected on a stellar 22-year career. The Celtic hero hung up his gloves officially yesterday as he participated in his farewell fixture. Arnish Postecoglou hoops were the opponents for Legio Warsaw and the match finished in a 2-2 draw. Speaking to Celtic TV after the game, Boruk said, It is a relief. I can feel free, finally. After 22 years, I wouldn't call myself professional 100%, but I gave everything. I am really happy I can enjoy my family full-time and that is the main thing for me. Celtic was an absolutely great time for me, personally and football-wise. Great European nights, trophies and domestically. The game against, you know, the opponents in Glasgow. It's been just absolutely fantastic for me and for my personal life. It was probably the best. Reflecting on his top moments in Glasgow, Boric added, there are a couple of games I can remember, but most of the time it is the things part of football. Those Champion League nights were just amazing. I have never felt anything again in my life. That probably sums it up. We had a great group of lads who gave everything every single day. That is what made us so good at the time. That article was by Aidan Smith. From The National, Thursday the 21st of July 2022, from the Sports Section. England reached semi-finals after Georgia Stanway stunner sees off Spain. Georgia Stanway scored a stunning extra-time winner as England came from behind to beat Spain 2-1 and seal a place in the Women's Euro 2022 semi-finals. The Lionesses looked set for an early exit as they were losing with just six minutes remaining in the Amex Stadium but an Ella Toon equaliser took the game to an additional 30 minutes, where Stanway lashed home the winning goal. Here, the PA news agency takes a look at what lies ahead. Lionesses roar into Final Four. 
England are still without a major honour in the women's game and it looked like another tournament was about to pass them by here. Having scored 14 goals and not conceding once in the group, this was their sternest test by far. Spain, who had not shown their best up until this point, turned on the style and duly took the lead through Esther González. England's hopes appeared to be sliding away, only for Toon to come off the bench and level from a knockdown from her Manchester United teammate Alessia Russo. That took the game into extra time, where Stanway settled the contest with a superb strike which teased England up for a semi-final clash against either Sweden or Belgium in Sheffield on Tuesday. Pain for Spain. One of the pre-tournament favourites, Spain once again fell at the quarter-final stage. It is the third women's Euros in a row in which they have not been able to get beyond the last eight. Spain dominated the majority of the 90 minutes, but they could not find a way back into the game after Toon's equaliser and will now have to regroup before a crack at next year's World Cup. Star player Alexia Putellas should be back and firing on all cylinders by then, having been ruled out of the Euros with a knee injury. Perfect 10 for returning Wiegmann. Serena Wiegmann was able to take her place in the dugout after recovering from coronavirus. Wiegmann had been forced to miss Friday's 5-0 win over Northern Ireland after testing positive for coronavirus early in the day. It was not until three hours before kickoff that the Football Association confirmed she had returned a negative test and could take her place on the bench. And Wiegmann oversaw a comeback victory that extends her winning record at the Women's Euros. She won all six matches in leading her native Netherlands to the title in 2017, and England are now four from four in their home tournament. Austrian sensation. Austria's manager Irene Fuhrmann leads her country into a quarter-final clash with Germany. The second of the quarter-finals takes place on Thursday night, as eight-time winners Germany take on Austria, the lowest-ranked nation left in the tournament. Head coach Irena Fuhrmann said, It's a sensation that we are among the top eight teams in Europe again. We have another chance to go up against one of the best teams in this tournament. Germany, like England, have proven how consistent they are. They haven't yet conceded a goal. It will be an incredible challenge. Up next, July the 21st. Quarter-final, Germany versus Austria, 8pm, Brentford Community Stadium. From The National, Thursday the 21st of July 2022, from the sports section. The key Scottish Premiership numbers ahead of new season kick-off. The Cinch Premiership season begins on the 31st of July. Here are some key numbers ahead of the big kick-off. 6. Half the Premiership teams have different managers to the ones which kicked off last season. 10. Celtic bagged 10 points more than Rangers after last season's winter break. 29. Points Livingston have won in 2022, more than anyone else other than Celtic and Rangers. 37. Consecutive seasons Motherwell have started a top-flight campaign more than anyone outside of Celtic and Aberdeen. 24. Goals and Johnston scored in 38 league games last season, 
roughly half as many as Ross County. 61. Goals against records of top six finishers Motherwell and Ross County, more than any other team apart from relegated Dundee. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.